Good morning. We welcome you to this assembly. We anxiously invite you to come back at 5 p.m. On Wednesday nights, Bible classes begin at 7.30. And you can visit our website, lhmacallan.org. Our website generates interest outside of this building, becoming an evangelistic tool. But it's also there for you. It is for your use to listen to sermons and keep up with various events here at Laurel Heights. If you were with us last Sunday morning, I spoke to us from Scripture about Bible authority. But I was not talking just about the book that we call the Bible. I said to us that within that word authority, there is the word author. We ought to think of God as the author. He is the author of life. He is the creator of human life. Think of him as creator, owner, father. But with respect to our present subject, we must think of God as the author of the Bible. Think of God as the author of this book. And when I read this book, when I read the Bible and learn the rules and principles and promises that are contained in this book, I'm listening to the author. I'm listening to God so that I can live for Him and eventually live with Him. <clears throat> so respect for the author of this book is essential every time we open this book. And that's what we're talking about last Sunday morning and again today. Having introduced the subject in that way last Sunday, I made reference to the fact that in Isaiah 52 and verse 7, the statement is made that God reigns. I want you to focus on that a moment. God reigns. He holds that right as the Creator. He made Jesus the King. The Holy Spirit has revealed the contents of the Bible, and that means that man is not the authority. And so the question then becomes one of communication. And the answer to that question is, this book which contains what God wants us to know and how He wants us to live. And that's what we're talking about when we speak of Bible authority. Bible authority is our quest to open this book and discover what the author of life has said that we need to attend to. How thankful we should be that He has revealed to us His will with promises of great blessings. Now, today, <clears throat> the second part of our study. When God speaks, what do we hear? When God speaks, what do we hear? And I'm going to offer no complicated formulas, no set of hermeneutical rules that men conceived, we're just going to answer the question, when God speaks, what do we hear? And when we talk about God speaking and our listening, remember, we're talking about 
the authoritative book that he gave. Sometimes we hear God say no. And we call that a prohibition. There are children in the audience. Children, when your parents tell you no, I think you understand exactly what that means. I know that you may not like it, but I hope you understand that your parents have your best interest in mind, and when they say no, they are prohibiting words or behavior they believe is harmful to you in the moment and in the future, and perhaps harmful to others, and detrimental to your forming a good relationship with God. See, they are your parents. They hold authority. Now, for all of us, God is our heavenly parent. And when He speaks to us through His Word, and when we're listening, sometimes He says no. And the best response is to not do what He forbids. Like our earthly parents... Sometimes God says no. Here's a very simple example. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 9, a very simple illustration of what we speak of now. It says, do not lie. Now, do we need any commentary? Do I need to take 30, 40 minutes and explain what that means? Do we need to look up the words in an English and Greek dictionary? Do we need someone to come in who's an expert on prohibitions and lecture us for a couple of weekends? Do we need to consult popular human public opinion? No, we don't need to do any of that. It is very simple. It is a prohibition. God said no. Respect for God and love for Christ will cause us to take heed to that, and in this case, not lie. Now, we'll have to use our minds that God gave us. We'll have to think about what that means in various situations. We will need to explore and be aware of the risk and consequences. We certainly conclude that this prohibition covers written lies and spoken lies and any form of not telling the truth. But we're using the mind God gave us combined with the book He gave us. Do not lie. Sometimes when God speaks through His Word, He simply says no. His authority is conveyed to us through His written Word. The written Word, the Bible, has authority over us because it came from the God who made us and owns us. One of the simplest discoveries the Bible reader makes is that sometimes God says to us, no, it's not good for you. I don't want you to do that. It displeases me. It hurts others. It puts you at eternal risk. God prohibits or forbids words, attitudes, actions, and reactions that are not in our present and eternal good. When God speaks, I need to listen. <clears throat> Sometimes God says, look at this. 
He gives us an example. The Bible is filled with examples of good behavior and bad behavior. One way to think of that is God is saying to us in various narratives in Scripture, look at this, and what do you learn? God teaches us through example, and that's part of His revelation of instruction to us. There is an instance of this that will be familiar to us in Acts 20 and verse 7, where Christians were together in an assembly much like this. It was the first day of the week. Paul was with them, and they observed the Lord's Supper. That's exactly why we observed the Lord's Supper a few minutes ago. God, in His Word, said to us, Look at this. Given the institution of the Lord's Supper by Jesus Christ, before Acts 20, and given Paul's teaching about it in 1 Corinthians 11 that we reviewed a few weeks ago, we pay attention to this example in Acts 20 and verse 7. That's the instruction God has given, and it becomes our practice since we want to live under His authority, and this expresses His authority. God is the author of this apostolic example. Again, it is the case. The authority of the Bible derives from God the Creator who caused His will to be written for us. What a marvelous act of grace that we don't have to guess what is right. We don't have to make it up ourselves. We don't have to rely on men voting and legislating religious law. We can respect and place ourselves under the authority of the Bible, believing with all of our hearts that this book came from God. When God speaks, sometimes He says, No. And I need to respect that. When God speaks, sometimes He says, look at this, pay attention to this. Sometimes God says nothing. Silence. And when God says nothing, we cannot just go in and fill in the blanks any way we want. We are obligated to respect the silence of God. Silence doesn't permit us just to launch out on our own. I'm going to illustrate that in a moment. <clears throat> but here is a case in Hebrews chapter 7 where this is apparent. Jesus could not be a Jewish priest on earth because <clears throat> he was of the tribe of Judah, not Levi, And concerning this, the writer says that God spoke through Moses nothing about priests from Judah. This is Hebrews 7.14. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Can you imagine people saying, well, since God didn't say anything about that, we'll make priests out of every tribe. That would be violating God's authority. God gave the law for the Jews before Christ through Moses, and in this case, God through Moses said nothing. In that dispensation, no Jewish man from Judah could become a priest. 
This was a case where God said nothing. It was not a grant that the Jews could do just anything they wanted. I should never argue that because God didn't say anything, I have permission and I can innovate and I can fill in the blanks. I need to respect the silence of God. So many activities and ministries and involvements of churches today presume on the silence of God. The attitude being perpetuated is, well, if God didn't say anything about it, it must be okay. Now, let me go to children again. <clears throat> How would that work with your parents, children? Here's an illustration. If your mother, back in the day when uh, mothers sent children to stores, I don't know if that happens much anymore. Your mother sends you to the store with $5 to buy a loaf of bread. I hope that's enough. And you know that you can't spend the change on anything you want. Obedience means that you are limited to what she has authorized. And while she's giving you more than adequate money, she's only authorized one purchase. Would you argue mom didn't say not to get a Dr. Pepper and a Butterfinger and a Baby Ruth? No, you wouldn't argue that way. She was silent about that, and that silence got through to you. Sometimes God says nothing, and our response ought to be, to respect his silence. When God speaks through his word, sometimes he says no. Sometimes he says, look at this. Sometimes he says nothing. Sometimes he says, do this. We sometimes call it a command or an imperative. God, through Jesus Christ, written in the New Testament, says to sinners who believe the gospel, repent and be baptized. That's written in Acts 2.38 and other places. And the person who comes to believe in Christ will not be inclined to resist that if their heart is right. Peter is communicating these commands of God, making it clear it wasn't a limited situational requirement that Peter came up with for that particular day because Peter said in Acts 2.39, the promise is for you and to your children and to all who are far off. And then it says, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, the words all and everyone make these commands universal. If anyone wants to get out of sin and be a Christian, these commands apply. Repent and be baptized. God has the right to issue commands. He has the right to specify how faith ought to express itself. That's one way His authority is revealed to us for our good. Do this. When you read a passage in the New Testament and the context indicates it is a command for every sinner or for every Christian or every husband and every wife, the expected response is obedience. When you read all that is revealed in the New Testament about the work of the local church, there are commands and they require collective agreement and obedience. Sometimes God 
commands. And sometimes he leads us to a conclusion. Sometimes called an inference, we discover in Scripture. One of the first times you see this is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus, as a teacher, I should say the master teacher, often led his students to a conclusion, expecting them to use the minds God gave them. Jesus would give facts and quote scripture and make an argument that would logically and necessarily lead to a conclusion he expected them to make. Deity communicates to us in that way, calling upon us to think and use the minds God gave us to infer. Jesus in his teaching did not always use direct statements. Sometimes he led the people to conclusions, asking them to think and understand what's involved. One example is Matthew twenty-two thirty-four to 40, where Jesus said, Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Now, what's wrapped up in that? What is implied? What conclusions do you reach when you apply that statement to your mind? Well, in order to love God, you must know Him. You must read and understand His will. You must have sufficient attitude or good heart that it will all lead you to the task of obedience, the obedience that is specified everywhere after the passage in Matthew. But it's implied that you're going to take in all of this in your mind when you see love, God. You're going to put obedience in there. In Hebrews 10.25, reference is made to Christians assembling together. And we are told not to forsake the assembling together of the saints. What does that imply? What conclusion do the facts lead to? That there must be a place where Christians do this assembling. It may be a rented property or someone's home or out under a tree or a building like this. But if we are to assemble, the conclusion or the necessary inferences, there must be a place where we fulfill that command. And so, as we read the Word of God, we ought to think of it as God speaking to us in various ways and various forms that our minds were made to take in. So God says, no, don't you think that way. Don't act that way. Don't do this. Or God says, look at this. Here's an example of what the apostles did. Or God says, nothing. Silence. We need to respect it. God issues a command, repent and be baptized. Or He leads us to a conclusion. As you read God's Word, as you listen to Him speak in various ways in His Word, you must and I must think in terms of what's my response going to be. What is my response going to be? Listen to this that Robin read to us earlier. Jesus came and said to them, All authority... In heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Observe. That's our response. And it's repeated over and over again what our response ought to be. Luke eleven twenty eight. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Acts five twenty nine. We must obey God. John eight thirty one. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. James one twenty one. Be doers of the word. Philippians four in verse nine. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. If I want the God of peace to be with me, I'll practice those things revealed through the apostles. Second John 9, Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. A gospel preacher friend of mine wrote this. He was talking about how do we avoid the ugly history of rejecting divine authority. And he said, first, by a deep reverence for the perfect and infinite wisdom of God who gave us this book. As Paul wrote to the Romans, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him? And it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. That's Romans 11, 33 to 36. Creatures cannot become the instructors of the Creator. The attempt to do so <clears throat> would be preposterous on our part and most arrogant. I'm continuing to quote Paul Earnhardt. To truly know God is to know ourselves and our human limitations. We cannot anticipate His infinite mind because... He does not think as we think, <clears throat> Isaiah 55, 6-9. Our task is to listen, to learn, and to obey. To listen, to learn, and to obey. Let's be standing as we sing.